Well, good morning, and um, it's a privilege to be here and bring God's word to you. So please open with me to Second uh, Corinthians 10, 1 through 18. Um, that's the passage we're focusing on this morning. Second Corinthians 10, 1 through 18. And our focus on this this morning um, is looking at why Paul is so riveted on the issue of boasting, and specifically boasting in the Lord. And the correlation we will name this this morning is making much of Jesus. So please follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 18. 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 18. <clears throat> I, Paul, myself entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have a divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence that God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limits in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would meet us here this morning. And that you would be our supreme treasure of our lives. For to have more of you is to be loved, God. So please move by your Holy Spirit through your word that we may experience joy not in ourselves, but in making much of Jesus. Guard me from error, and I ask that you would save the perishing, that you would raise up the downcast, 
and that you would do more things that we could ever ask or think in our own finite being, O Lord. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever experienced the uncertainty of words? Words can be confusing at times. But here at Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, we view the Bible rightly and how it is inspired by God without error, 2 Timothy 3.16. The scriptures cannot be broken, John 10.35. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the Bible's truth, 1 Corinthians 2.14. And we receive the Bible as God's actual word to us, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It is the ultimate authority in all of life for all truth, that answers life's most important question about our biggest problem, our sinful nature, and our need to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and his person and work. All that doesn't mean we don't have problems. We are finite and we are sinful. And we read the Bible with a cultural bias. We bring our own experiences and they affect the way we interpret the Bible. Language itself can be confusing in that the same words carry different meanings, and different words carry the same meanings, depending on our context and our culture and our experiences. Take the word rock to mean a stone, for example, or a music genre, or even something you do in a rocking chair. In contrast, take a European saying, let's play football today, to an American who responds saying, no, I'd like to play soccer. What a waste of time spent if they spend the whole day arguing about which sport they would play. So the same words can have different meanings and different words can have the same meanings. This is true in the Bible as well. While words are at times frustrating, they are also a very precious means of communicating. We feel this frustration when we are misunderstood by another person. When all we need to do is ask to diffuse the situation is, what do you mean exactly by that word? Help me to understand what you're saying, because this is what I take it to mean. When the Son of God became a human being, he became vulnerable to abuse and death. The same goes for the Word of God when it, became, when it was written into human language. It became vulnerable to abuse and uncertainty and misunderstanding. So why am I bringing this up? Well, in the text of 2 Corinthians 10, Paul's Corinthian critics are bringing charges against him and claiming that his letters are potent, but he is pathetic in person, possibly by a misunderstanding of something he said by his words and actions. And we see this in verse 10 where it says, For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. And Paul defends his ministry with a response in verse 11 saying, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. He also goes on to say in verses three through six, he says, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion, raise it against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So Paul is bringing a defense of his ministry. And when we do bring up a defense, not only for Paul, but for us, we can, it can lead us to boasting of ourselves. In this context of this passage, Paul leads us in an explanation about the underlying issue of boasting. And for us, we boast about a lot of things. When was the last time you boasted about something of yourself? Not only outwardly, but inwardly. 
maybe about your looks, the way you look, or your intelligence and how good you are at your job, or, or your performance, or pick anything. We all struggle with this. And Paul had much to boast about as he carefully makes a defense of his ministry with the thesis statement in verse 17, which says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And in the words we will use this morning is making much of Jesus. And so all Christian boasting should be in Jesus. So our main gospel point this morning is to get our boasting right, we must be riveted on making much of Jesus. And we are going to focus on three reasons why we should be riveted on making much of Jesus. And and they are, one, it eliminates boasting of self. Two, it helps us fight and flee from sin in obedience to God. And three, it enables us to love and minister to others without comparison. Let's look at the first reason on why Paul is so riveted on making much of Jesus. One, it eliminates boasting of self, which Paul is very eager to do. We see him talk about boasting 52 times within his epistles. We see him talk about it seven times in this particular chapter in 2 Corinthians 10. Verse 8, Paul boasting of his authority. Verse 13, not boasting beyond limits, but boasting to influence others assigned by God. Verse 15, not boasting beyond limit. Verse 16, without boasting of work already done. Verse 17, boasting in the Lord alone. And we also see the elimination of boasting of self in in Romans 3, 27 through 28, which Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So that teaching eliminates boasting of self. Now, why would anybody want to do that in the American culture that we live in? The last thing anybody wants to do today is eliminate boasting. We live in one of the most self-asserting, self-esteeming, self-exalting cultures that ever was, as far as I can tell, in your face self. It's a name of a magazine. Just look at some of the stickers on vehicles or tweets of, of trending pop culture and you'll read things like, pagan and proud of it. I smoke and I drink, buzz off. Or get in touch with your inner grown-up for a change. It's kind of a feisty, in-your-face culture that we live in. And just listen to some of the most popular TV radio programs out there and podcasts. They are programs who have a gift for feisty, in-your-face, put-down one-liners that cut you off and make you look stupid. That is prized in our day, to have a gift of the one-liner that ends the conversation and makes everybody wish they could have said it. That is, that's what we value. Politicians, preachers, the public figures in which they hold somewhat of a bravado about their bearing. A kind of know-it-all, we don't make mistakes, we answer all questions attitude. And if you ask us one we don't know, we'll answer the one we do know and pretend like we answered the original question. It's a culture in which why would anybody want to eliminate boasting? This is what we're about. So why is Paul so riveted 
in making much of Jesus that is so effective in eliminating that. Why? In this culture we live in, the story about Jesus and the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18, 10 through 14 would never fly. Two men went up to, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus to himself, God, I thank you, Father, that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But this tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In which Jesus replies, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, not the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, that may, that may not fly in our culture, but it was what Paul believed with all his heart. Paul was in perfect harmony with Jesus, which is why he is so riveted on this doctrine of making much of Jesus that eliminates boasting of self. So why is it important for Paul and us to eliminate boasting of self? Because that's what the universe is about. It's all about God and not us. It's all about God getting glory and not us getting glory. The creation exists to call attention to the creator and not the creature, John Piper says. You and I exist to make much of Jesus, not to, make him, not to get him to make much of us. Our joy does not reside in making much of ourselves, but it resides in making much of Jesus. A lot of you know this, uh, but some of you not quite yet. And I'm bound by this passage to help you with my meager efforts, so let's test ourselves. Is there not more deep and lasting joy to be had as you stand at the foot of the Rocky Mountains? And let your heart and your mind and your eyes be drawn up into the mountains and behold them. Is not more deep and lasting joy to be had there than when you stand in front of the mirror and behold that. You were made for the Rockies, not the mirror. You were made to make much of Jesus. You were made to enjoy making much of Jesus, I promise you. And our whole culture has been fixed on, it, on convincing you of the exact opposite. Namely, you were made to be made much of. We know we're on the right track when we see later in the chapter, in verse 17, which says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So how do you boast not in yourself and boast in the Lord? You cast yourself on God for mercy and that makes God look big and you look small. You get the joy, God gets the glory. And 1 Corinthians 1, 24, Paul and Jesus say that they are for your joy. It's not a bad thing to get rid of boasting out of your life. It's a good thing. It's like, do you have to get rid of the infection to make me well? Answer, yes. I have to get rid of the infection to make you well. 
If you want full joy in Jesus, which is the only place it can be had, you must lay down the competitors. And self is one of the biggest competitors in our culture today. The psalmist says in Psalm 16:11 about joy, about true joy in God, he says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So true joy, lasting and eternal, no matter what you go through, is in Christ. So, in getting our boasting right by making much of Jesus, not only eliminates boasting of self, but it also helps us fight and flee from sin in obedience to God, which is our second point. In the context of verses 3 through 6, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, warfare are not of the flesh, but have a divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So in verse 2, right before that, Paul, it, it states that some suspect Paul and others with him of walking according to the flesh. What does that mean here? Well, does it mean that a person is conducting himself unfaithfully and improperly according to the truth of Scripture? In other instances of Paul's writing, it can mean that. But in this particular context, it rather means that Paul is being accused of outward pomp and selfish gain to be an ambitious show-off. Why? Because there are false apostles around him that are doing exactly just that, to focus primarily on speaking well with eloquence. Speaking well is not bad within itself, but when it's idolized over God and others, then it's sin. Verse 10 states that Paul, Paul's letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and of no account. So there is somewhat of an examination that the Corinthians are giving to Paul to cause him to bring a defense of his apostolic authority. Paul responds in verses 3 through 6, which we've read, and verse 3 saying, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So, waging war? What kind of war? If not against the flesh, then against whom? Verse 4 goes on, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have a divine power to destroy strongholds. What is this divine power that destroys? And what are the strongholds and why must they be destroyed? To answer these questions, we must understand that life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that, and it is against Satan and his sinful influence in our lives. The Apostle Paul related Christian warfare to tactics of Greco-Roman siege warfare, which was common among his day. This contextualization is important because Paul is relating that Greco-Roman cultural warfare as metaphors for the Christian war. And so others would understand more that the Christian life is one of war. In verse 4, Paul was opposed, and the opposition was classified as strongholds, which are wrong thinking and behavior of those who resist Paul's apostolic authority, and more so, the gospel. The argument was that Paul was in the flesh, so how could he have divine authority? Yes, he is in the flesh, but he does not conduct his ministry according to the flesh. 
which they accuse him of. That means that Paul does not depend upon himself to carry out his ministry. His supernatural powers don't originate within himself, but he is a helpless vessel given over to death to do the work of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10, talk about this. God is the source of all wisdom and power to overcome these strongholds. Even though Paul categorizes himself as in the flesh, his power is Christ's power, which is perfected in weakness. Paul does not rely on cunning methods to win arguments, but on God's power in him, so that he fights according to God's rules of engagement and not the world's, with many divine weapons at his disposal. The weapons are not physical, they are spiritual, which include prayer, divine wisdom, holy conduct, the word of God, faith, and power of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1, 18 to chapter 2, 14. Paul knows that these are the only weapons that can repel Satan and his influence. This shows that weapons from God are needed so that one is not led astray in the stronghold influence of Satan and his followers. For you don't go to war without weapons. The Corinthians prided themselves on their attitudes and their own way of thinking, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2. And now they are denying Paul, chapter 11, verse 6, while claiming to possess a superior knowledge. These arguments, strongholds, are any intellectual argument that humans construct to ward off the truth of the gospel. Instead of going to the Bible first, they take their own experiences and usurp the authority of what scripture says. We all struggle with this. I struggle with this. Paul proposes to show boldness against these arguments that he functions not by the world's standards, but by God's. He states, we preach Christ the Lord, chapter 4, verse 5, and we preach Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians 1.23. Overall, the Christian life is one of warfare against these strongholds, to sum things up. Against these strongholds, which include deceitful schemes, arguments and thoughts of Satan, who is against the truth of God's word, that infiltrate the minds and hearts of believers and unbelievers. The power to fight against these strongholds comes from God's Holy Spirit through Christ Jesus and is put within the hearts of Christians so that we live obediently to and dependently on God alone. Ed Welch in his book called Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, such vivid Im imagery that we can all benefit from this book. Uh, he describes warfare in the Christian life very well. He says, there is a mean streak to authentic self-control. Self-control is not for the timid. If we want, when we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, we also demand of ourselves a hatred for sin. The only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. There is something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves and you are in attack mode. Someone coughs and you are ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. This war is not against people, but against our own sinful inclinations that settles for a peacetime outlook. This war is against dominating cravings for food, 
alcohol, money, approval of others, power, fame, lust, and our own indifferences to the injustice of prejudices, poverty, abortion, and even our wavering commitment to the local church in which Jesus Christ died for. Jesus said, if you don't fight sin, you won't go to heaven. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown in, into hell. Matthew 5:29. John Piper expounds this and says, the point is not that true Christians always succeed in every battle. The issue is that we resolve to fight, not that we succeed flawlessly. We don't make peace with sin, we make war. Paul goes on in verse 5, he says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So, how do we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion against God? And how do we take every thought captive to obey Christ? One example is Jesus in the desert when Satan, when Satan tempts him three times. What does Jesus do in response to the temptation? He quotes scripture. He quotes scripture back, the word of God, to Satan, and Satan flees. No one can compete with the power of God's word. Another example can be this. You may have heard or seen a book called The Five Love Languages. There's good things about knowing someone else's love language. I'm not going to deny that. It's good to know how someone else is loved. What, but what's so disturbing about this book is its appeal and claim for the secret to love that lasts. And how if you just apply its self-help principles, then you can save your marriage with Bible verses thrown in as secondary truths. What makes this book so disturbing is that it sets people up with a false sense of restoration because it completely fails to bring in the gospel of Jesus Christ and how Jesus alone restores relationships, not how much is in your love tank. In that book, the, the book fails to address the following questions. How do you respond when someone who doesn't impart to you your love language? Even worse, how do you fill up your so-called love tank to love your spouse or someone else if your spouse sins against you and commits any sort of despising hatred towards you? How do you respond to that? Well, this book is a failure of such core biblical principles to respond in forgiveness and love deep down in the gospel's truths to love one another regardless of how you are treated in which Jesus so exemplified for us, where Christ first loved us, as it says in 1 John 4:19, and forgave us so that we can love and forgive others, regardless of how we are treated. He didn't say it would be easy, but he does say that he will be with you, Matthew 28, 20. With that said, if there are resources out there or arguments that you hear, we must take them captive and gently love one another in a sense that we can see and, and argue in a way that is loving towards one another. And if it doesn't line up with the true knowledge of God in the Bible, we must see how we can correct that gently and take it captive, examine it, and how we can align it up with the obedience of Christ in Scripture. This, doing this makes much of Jesus. So in getting our boasting right by making much of Jesus not only helps us fight and flee from sin, in obedience to God, but it also enables us to love and minister to others without comparison. Verses 12 and 13 
talk about this, where it says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence that God assigned to us to reach even to you. So verse 12, there's a classifying and comparing oneself with others who commend themselves, boast of themselves. Why does Paul bring this up continually? He keeps hammering on it. So as we discussed previously, it was because of the false apostles who prided themselves on selfish ambition and conceit. Those who measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another are without understanding. We've all struggled with this. And Paul's saying that is unwise. And it leads to wrong motives and actions. Motives possibly of an unhealthy competition to usurp one another's authority in the Lord or, or someone who's called to do a ministry and, and you're not particularly called. And so you aim for glory for yourself and not for God and treat others as they're nothing. This is abominable to God for you are making much of yourself and not Jesus. Psalm 36.2 states of a boasting person, he, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. John Calvin goes on and also says that we are undoubtedly more in danger from prosperity than from adversity. For when matters go smoothly, we flatter ourselves and are intoxicated with our success. Walt Mueller, a friend of mine who's um, the president of Center for Parent and Youth Understanding, and he's been in the youth ministry for decades, and um, the humble man of God who has taught me a lot of things, he, he said that after spending four decades deeply embedded in the youth ministry world and living with and getting to know myself during that time, I find these words in prayer from Elizabeth Elliot, good words for all of us in ministry and all Christians at that. Keep them constantly in mind. The God who determined the measurements of the foundations of the earth sets limitations to the scope of our work. It is always tempting to measure ourselves by one another, but this easily leads to boasting or despair. It is our business to find the sphere of service allotted to us and to do all that God has appointed to us to do within that sphere not commending ourselves from verse 12 in the chapter. Furthermore, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7 says that neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So let us pray and ask God to inspire our hearts and minds to do the same with words like, Lord, glorify yourself through me and then in the place you've sent me. Let me not covet another person's place, work, or glory. So the essence of sin is making much of ourselves and not making much of Jesus and his glory. And sometimes we get our boasting out of whack. And maybe you're not a Christian and your boasting is in your looks, or you're a Christian and you're boasting about the same thing. Your looks, your money, your power, your fame, your performance, or something else. This message is for you, and I plead with you to please think and pray over what we've seen here in 2 Corinthians 10. 
that you were made to glorify God. You were made to make much of God. Isaiah 43 says, Bring my sons from the ends of the earth and my daughters from afar, whom I've created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You were made to glorify God. And so I plead with you that to see that our main problem is that we have rebelled against him and wanted ourselves to be our own gods. And we have, in that rebellion, in word, deed, and every thought, we deserve eternal death and wrath of God because he created us and he can do with us what, we, what he pleases. The problem is we choose what he, we have a choice here, and God works through that choice. And so I plead with you that to look at the situation and see that the solution in Scripture says that Christ took upon your guilt and he took upon your shame. And even worse, he took upon your track record of raunchiness. He took upon it and he nailed it to the cross and he suffered for you the wrath of God in your place. He stood there so you don't have to stand there. Suffering the punishment that we all deserve. And he conquered victory over Satan's strongholds through his resurrection, rising from the grave. And, and we have a righteousness to be imputed to us by faith alone that cleanses us from our sins. And that righteousness is Christ's righteousness, not our own, not our own boasting, but the Lord's. And therefore, we can live a life of faith and obedience to God, turning from our sin and turning to him to love him, to love others, to serve him in our area of influence. And so I plead with you, if you haven't accepted Christ in your heart, now's the time. Indecision is a decision. So I plead with you, please, put your faith in Christ. And don't delay any longer. This makes much of Jesus. And so may we leave here in getting our boasting right by being riveted on making much of Jesus as we trust him to eliminate boasting of self, to help us fight and flee from sin and obedience to God, and to enable us to love and minister to others without comparison. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we, we come here seeking to make much of you, that you would be our supreme treasure in our lives, and to have more of you is to be loved. And we pray for more of you. We pray to know you more, to love you more, to boast in you alone, to put to death our own boasting. We pray that you would get rid of that infection that just breeds all sort of sin. We pray <clears throat> that you would eliminate boasting of ourselves. You would help us to fight and flee from sin in obedience to God. And you would enable us to love and minister to others without comparison. We pray that you would do more than we could ever ask or think. Lord, in your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name, we pray. Amen.